0: So good to see your faces and interact with the Word of God together. And we are preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most compact, concise block of teaching from Christ um, that I can find in my bible Matthew five and to five to seven, Matthew chapter five to chapter seven—and uh, really looking forward to seeing how Jesus will speak to us this morning. But I have had. Something bubble up, a prayer bubble up in me that I would ask you to join, join me in this prayer. Um, over the last week, I've begun to pray, God, bring people to new life who want to have a relationship with Jesus and want to hear and obey and follow Jesus. And I think about all of you in that. I think about myself in that. God, make us willing in, to follow the words of Christ, the authoritative words of Jesus, to do the hard thing if need be, Right? So it's been a real, you know, I'm praying that God will bring people here, even people that don't know him yet, who will respond to Jesus. And I believe that Jesus is is so attractive. His teaching is so to the heart that you see in the Gospels many times it's the people that have no no pre-existing relationship with Christ that respond to him most fully, or those who are outcasts or kind of like off uh, in another corner of society for some reason. And I'm praying that those people would come and hear the invitation of Christ, uh, not just a relationship with him, through, through, uh, with God, but also into this uh, discipleship of following after him and doing even the hard things that he calls us to. And certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, we see, we see some of the hard things. I, constantly with, with the person of Christ, he's teaching, people are listening. Some people are sincere in their desire to hear, understand, and obey, and follow. And some people are like, well, that's too much for me, and I'm going home. And so that's kind of the response that Jesus gets. It's also the response that we give to Jesus too. So it's no different for us and for me as your pastor and for each of us to pray that we'd have hearts that follow Jesus and find out what he has to say and then follow him. Because in, in this is life. In this is life, I believe. So we're, we're going to start in uh, Matthew 5, 17 today, pick it up from a little bit where we were last week. And this is kind of the preamble to... Uh, the teachings that will follow. this will be Matthew 5:17 through 20. Jesus said, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see how that could sound like a hard teaching? I have a whole book in my office called The Hard Teachings of Jesus, and it's a thick book with small letters. Um, contrary to popular culture's belief, Jesus had some hard teachings. I believe Mr. Hebert led a, led a Sunday school through that, the hard teachings of Christ with Aaron. And uh, it, it's there. And here Jesus is, is confronting us right away. And this is Jesus' vision of how the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, matter to him and to people that will come after him. Many times there's confusion about these things. So Jesus is clarifying. He's giving his, his take on the Law and the Prophets. And how he uses them. You may have heard this quote. It's, it's, it's attributed to uh, Mark Twain. But Mark Twain allegedly said, It's not the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts I can understand. And uh, Jesus is now explaining uh, his, his take on the Old Testament, on the law and the prophets, and in a way that we can understand. So Jesus starts out this passage saying, Do not think I have come to abolish the law, or the prophets. Why would Jesus say this? Because people in his audience were thinking that he came to abolish the law and the prophets. So Jesus, you know, has a a way of knowing what people are thinking before they say it. And he looks at their faces, he looks at the crowd, says, these people think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. So he wants to to, uh, illuminate them about how he thinks about these things. Uh, Jesus sees this very diverse crowd and and in the, in the crowd are the, the uh, you see in the end of the passage, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. That's one class of people in the crowd, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And these are the people that everyone thought were the religious elite that got it right. They scoured the Old Testament. They tried to obey every command. They, they, were, they were legalists in a way. And also in the crowd were people who were what we call minimalists, people that are wondering, what's the bare minimum of what I have to do to follow Jesus? So, in the crowd, like in any crowd today, you have legalists and minimalists. And, uh, you know, as, as I've defined those words. And Jesus starts this passage saying to both the legalists, the law people, and the minimalists, how little do I have to do? Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but, but to fulfill them. In both groups, people were wrongly thinking that Jesus was breaking the law, abolishing the law and the prophets or trying to abolish them, or get rid of the Old Testament in some way, which bothered everybody. But Jesus says to both groups, no, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is that the entire law and the prophets are summed up in me, and fulfilled in me, and summed up in these two ideas. Love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's underneath everything. And love your neighbor as yourself. Or the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. These two commands... Jesus says, sum up the entire law and the prophets. And this is very threatening to all of the groups that would have been listening to Jesus. To the legalist who is listening to Jesus, who, who enjoys nitpicking other people's lives and nitpicking their own lives with the letter of the law, Jesus saying that the whole thing is summed up in these two commands is taking away their criteria to nitpick everybody and nitpick themselves. Also, for the, for the minimalist who's trying to who who actually probably desires that Jesus would just dismiss the law and the prophets and say, they're not relevant today. For the minimalist, Jesus says, no, actually there's more to it than that. Not the smallest pen stroke or or dot from the Old Testament, from the law and the prophets is going to pass away. Uh, But it's been fulfilled by me, and it's fulfilled in love. So Jesus, just by saying that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets and saying that he came to fulfill them, and declaring the most important laws of love for God and love for others— is standing in condemnation of the legalist, and in condemnation of the minimalist, um, and offering everyone a more difficult path they have to choose into going forward. And he begins teaching some hard teachings that he says are a reflection of the greatest command to love God and to love other people. And it's hard, this is a teaching that's hard for Jesus' original hearers as it is for us. We're not so different from his original hearers in this passage. You know, Philip Yancey, I remember uh, in the 90s, he wrote in a book, Jesus is not Mr. Rogers with a beard. He's, uh, he's not uh, this person who's sort of toast and demure and just, oh, I hope you follow me. You know, Jesus is challenging. And sometimes we'd rather he didn't articulate what he meant by different things. But he does. He makes it clear. He makes his ethics clear. And uh, it gets to the heart many times of our own sinfulness, our own desire to do our own thing. And with Jesus, you know, with his teachings, this is one of those cases of what we don't, just because we don't know something doesn't mean it doesn't hurt us. If we don't follow the teachings of Jesus, you know, it can, it can hurt us. So to break Jesus' commands, to not follow Jesus' example, uh, to dig into these, these, these laws through the filter of Christ is is something that hurts us and those around us. So Jesus does not go easy on the law and the prophets, but he interprets them according to the deepest level of the original intention of the author because Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God, the word of God that was with him in the beginning through whom the world was created. Jesus knows the intention of the law, so he's able to simply say, this is what it means. You've heard it said this? This is what it means. And that's what he begins to do. He begins to say, you've heard this, but I tell you this. And it just starts to heat up. It really starts to heat up. And, uh, and it's pretty, it's pretty uh, stark, the kind of things he starts to teach. He says things like, if you don't follow these things, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Things like that. You're in danger of, be, of, of being refuse and burning if you don't put these things into practice. You're in danger. Years ago, I was talking to a brother in Christ, um, and he was describing his dysfunctional family that he grew up with, and what it was like growing up in this system, this family system, where it seemed like mom and dad were competing to see how abusive they could be towards their kids. And then, as as in these systems, uh, family systems, the older kids started to do that to the younger kids as well, and my friend was one of the youngest kids in the family, so he got the brunt of his parents and of his siblings. And the story, the story was so extreme to hear and so troubling, yet it was his experience. It was his objective experience growing up. And I remarked to him, you know, it sounds almost as if your parents ha- are dealing with some sort of mental health issues or untreated emotional problems. And I'll never forget his response to me. He said, no, they're not. This family became this way over time. Over time, as my parents continued to be abusive, as they continued to choose over and over again to act in unloving ways uh, toward each other, towards the children. And he was saying, in essence, that it wasn't a mental health issue from his perspective, but that they had become this over time of, uh, with their kids. And this was, this was a family who loved to quote the Bible to their kids, who went to church. you know, Not our church, but who went to church, who loved to quote the Bible, um, and, and it was a very destructive environment. You know, this, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, if you don't do these things, you're in danger of the fires of hell. The, the, the word for hell there refers to an actual place uh, called Gehenna where people burn their garbage. As a, so like burning bodies and, and garbage and refuse, like medical waste. Jesus is saying, if you don't follow these teachings of mine, you begin to stink. You begin to change. And over time you become stinking of hell with present and future implications. You know, this is a serious business. And, my, and I think that, you know, perhaps like you, I'm so, I'm so ready to assign a different reason to why people behave the way they do. But the truth, my friend is right. Sometimes people just have one foot in front of the other. And they've become something very different than they ever intended to become as they've walked uh, in the opposite direction of love and of Jesus. And sometimes those people can be in church. You know? Uh, that's why I'm praying, God, make us open to following your commands. Let's make, bring people here who are open to following Jesus uh, so that we can get this right. So that we can be a people who sincerely love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Do unto others as we would have them do unto you. So, Jesus is giving all of these commands. and He's also saying, I myself am the, am, the, am the Messiah and I've fulfilled these things. So not only So in many ways, Jesus has this ultimate authority in every way. He's God in the flesh. He's the Messiah. Everything he asks us to do, he did every day. Everything that he asks us to do, he did every day to the extreme, to the extreme level. You know, think about things like dying on the cross for people's sins who are still your enemies. This is what Jesus did and demonstrated. So this is a deep, a deep thing. And Jesus insisted that the real followers of his would not dismiss the law and the prophets, but would look at the law and the prophets for the deeper intention of God underneath everything, see the deeper desire of God for them, and then practice the way of Jesus, the Messiah, following his life, his example, and his teachings. So with that in mind, I'd like to jump into his first really big theme in Matthew 5, 21 to 37, uh, where he jumps into this, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Uh, Jesus is, is, is saying, you've heard it this said in culture, you've heard it said uh, of, of the Bible, but I'm going to tell you the real, the real stuff. So in Matthew 5, 21 to 37, we're going to read this. And the heading is murder. It says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka is answerable to the court. That means empty-headed, foolish, if you will. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. And truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny." This is the word of Christ. So Jesus here is expounding on the sixth commandment out of ten. Thou shalt not murder from Exodus 20, 13. The commandment that Moses brought down the mountain to tell the people of Israel how God expected them to behave with one another. And this is something we can all agree on. Do not murder is a pretty good commandment. Most people think that's a good idea not to murder people. The original Hebrew word for murder there is actually murder. You know, that's what it means. Do not murder. So Jesus is quoting and affirming the truth of this original command. But what do you think humans have done with God's original command, do not murder? Well, let's look at our two categories, the legalists and the minimalists. So the legalist looks at the command, do not murder, and says in their heart, I hate my enemies. I may even attack one of my enemies, I detest the air that they breathe and the space they take up. But I will not kill my enemies, for that would be breaking the big command number six from Moses. I will tolerate my enemy. I may even fight my enemy. I may even have someone else kill my enemy if I'm angry enough, but I will not pull the trigger. That's how the legalist would look at do not murder. Everything but doing it. The The minimalist might say, Perhaps Jesus, who was God in the flesh, didn't, have, didn't hate anyone or kill anyone. After all, he was God. He was perfect. Um, but surely God doesn't expect that same thing of me. Jesus fulfilled the law, uh, so I'm going to heaven. I don't, I don't really have to worry about anger or murder. But just the same, I'm probably not going to kill anyone just to be safe. You know, that's the minimalist in my mind. And Jesus says to everyone on this spectrum, from the legalist to the very loose folks... You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to his brother or sister, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus says that God's original intent in giving this command was not simply that we wouldn't murder each other, which seems like a rather minimal requirement from this verse but jesus tells them that when someone is says to this this crowd when someone is angry in their heart or calls a brother or sister a fool that they start to stink like hell they just start to stink in the old testament anger is taken seriously but not 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 as seriously as jesus brings into focus here this is a really serious teaching and, um, and the idea of murder, Jesus has taken and expanded it and deepened it to include anger. So Jesus is pulling back the curtain on God's thought process when he gave that original command, uh, you shall not murder. And he is saying, if one takes, he, he is saying, it's not enough to not murder, but you must also not hold anger in your heart towards someone else. Jesus is saying, if you take care of your anger, there's not going to be any murder. It's kind of like um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Has that some of the law and the prophets? Because if you do that, you're not going to break God's law. It's going to be all inclusive. So Jesus says, "If you shall not murder, but if you, and if you but if you take care of your anger, murder will never happen." So Jesus redefines murder for us, and he includes anger in that category something that we are very okay with. Something that we are very, very okay with. With the people that we love in our household, with friends who betray us or who we have an issue with, and through our adversaries in society. We see a lot of murder happening these days. Jesus redefines murder. You've heard that it was said to the people, you should not murder But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. Anyone who calls out to someone they're a fool is in danger of the fires of hell. The Old Testament law outlined tons and tons of situations in which people would murder each other and what to do about each of them. The legalists love that stuff because here's what you did, here's your consequence. The Old Testament had... Provisions for accidental murder, when you accidentally kill somebody, all the way to premeditated murder, to bring about God's justice in society. Je- Jesus bypasses all that specific guidance, which is just, co- just common sense, wise guidance. He goes to the heart of the matter. Namely, the desire in the heart of the person who has murder in their heart is what really convicts them if they are, have murder or not. Jesus says anyone who is angry in their heart is subject to judgment. If someone is angry enough to call someone a fool, which is, which is just a slur, a raka, they become in danger of hellfire. You now, Jesus is not splitting hairs here, but showing how anger escalates and quickly in the heart from internal thoughts to external words to external actions. It happens very quickly. And this entire spectrum of anger is not acceptable to God, even though it's acceptable to us. It really is acceptable to us. Just think about yourself over the last week. It's acceptable to us, right? I, I can see it myself. So Jesus prohibits anger, which goes from thoughts to words to actions, and says, if, if you take care of the bitter root of anger, if you take care of the bitter root of anger, then you're not going to ever get to a place where you actually hurt somebody. Um, and if you take care of the bitter root of anger, the word says in Ephesians, then you don't give Satan a foothold in your life. There's only one place in the Bible it talks about giving your adversary a foothold in your life, and that's in anger that you hold in your heart. You give your enemy a place to stand, and a hand, and a, and a you know, a, a, a sturdy place to stand and wreak all kinds of havoc in your life when you hold on to anger. It kills you. So if we don't take care of our anger. If we don't pull up those bitter roots of anger, we give the enemy a foothold. Uh, we hold murder in our hearts, according to Jesus. And Jesus' hard teaching here is that we, what we perceive to be inconsequential, just being anger, angry in our hearts toward another person, whether we say it or not, that God takes this extremely seriously. Extremely seriously. Listen to God trying to reason with one of our, one of our forefathers, Cain, in Genesis. This is really early in, in the Bible. The, this, the Lord actually gives him some free counseling. The Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The next verse says, And now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Right after his counseling session with God. That's how fast that went. God tried to reason with Cain, uh, but Cain had contempt in his heart for his brother. And this contempt, unchecked, if you look at the original language, he says, sin is crouching at your door like a ferocious beast, just waiting for the door to open a little bit, like a foothold in your life. And that was when Cain attacked his brother and killed him. I mean, we don't know if, if Cain was trying to kill Abel. We don't know that. Maybe he was just trying to attack him. No one had ever been murdered before. But we do know that his anger caused Cain to die. And that, that's why it was murder. And it started with contempt in his heart and jealousy and rage. So here in our passage, we need to take seriously that Jesus said being angry can lead us to the fires of hell, to, to begin to stink. And then Jesus gives us. But, but the, the good news, of course, with Jesus is that he always gives us a way to deal with these things. Because anger does pop in our hearts. Sometimes we entertain anger or go through situations where we, we, we get sucked into it. But, G, but Jesus has, uh, in verse 23, a remedy, an extreme remedy to deal with anger and get through it in a way that honors God so that we don't end up stinking like hell and perishing from this. Here Jesus says, in verse 23, Therefore, after talking about anger... If you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So since Jesus says anger in the heart leads someone to be in danger of the fires of hell, he gives us strong encouragement to deal with our anger through reconciliation with others. So reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ, this passage is saying, Jesus is saying, is more important than offering any gift to God in the temple. He says, you're on your way to the temple to offer the prescribed sacrifice to God, drop it. Just drop it. Don't even worry about that. It doesn't matter. When you have anger in your heart, drop the sacrifice that you're trying to make for God and deal with your brother or sister. Jesus' words, and if you look really carefully at the way that he phrased this, they don't leave us any room to wiggle out of reconciliation. There's no way to do it, the way that he worded this. Jesus doesn't say, if you are offering your gift at the temple and then remember you have something against your brother and sister. No. He says, if you're offering your gift at the temple and then remember your brother or sister has something against you. So this is like really serious. It's about us taking the initiative with someone who is, has, something, has a problem with us. So you might have no problem with somebody, but you know they have a problem with you. God says, drop your sacrifice and go and make that right. That's interesting. And then he says, after you've reconciled, come and offer your gift. This is a worship that's acceptable and pleasing to God, but God does not want any offerings beyond before you reconcile. This is a priority number one situation. So it's all about us taking initiative to go to someone who has offended us even if we don't feel the same way. We are to go to people who we know are not right with us first, not waiting for them to do it, not saying they're the ones that should do it, not wiggling out. It's someone who you know has an issue with you, who needs to be reconciled with you, and you have to do that before you offer your offering to God. So Jesus continues in his, in his merciless uh, prescription for us, And I mean merciless in a a funny way because it is so thorough. It doesn't let us wiggle out. Jesus also doesn't say what the person might be angry with you about. He just says the words, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Something? That's really broad. Really, Jesus? Just something? Could you please be more specific about that? No, he's not. He just says, he refuses to say, whether the grievance they have against you is valid or invalid in your eyes. You might actually think, this is ridiculous. What's wrong with this person? You know They need to come to me and make this right, and plus, this is not a big deal, and we should just move on from this thing. But Jesus refuses to let us wiggle out of that. He says, if you're, if you're going to follow me, then your heart has to be soft enough to go to a brother or sister who has something, something against you Uh, something that is not maybe even reasonable in your eyes, but is reasonable in their eyes, you are to go to them first in humility and do everything you can to be reconciled to them. And all of this is to avoid having anger in your life because anger is so incredibly toxic to our soul. Um, Jesus is saying you have to be thorough with this. Don't wiggle out of it. If you remember that someone has something against you, you need to humble yourself and you need to go to them and try to make it right. It's a hard teaching. But it is a thorough teaching. And I believe that if we put this into practice on a regular basis, we could avoid the pitfalls of anger. It's, it's, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. Romans 12.18 has a, has a description of reconciliation. It says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So even if, you, even, even if you yourself are not angry, even if you do not think their anger is a valid reason to be angry, even if none of it makes any sense to you, you are to go to them in humility and make every effort to live at peace with them. And only after you've done this thoroughly, as far as it depends on you, in good faith, with sincerity, desiring to fix the problem, that's the only time you should come back to the temple and start worshiping God again. It's very, of course, important to point out that there are some disputes between people where, this, where you have done everything you can in good faith to reconcile and they refuse to reconcile with you. And But you continue and you try, you try, you try. Your heart's really in it. You're not just trying to wiggle out of it. That's why it says in Romans 12:18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There are times... When it is not possible for various reasons, sometimes the person that you have uh, an issue with is dead, and you can't reconcile with them. if someone's still alive, I think we're supposed to go after reconciliation because until until we get it right until we make our relationships right with God, he doesn't want us to sit and worship him all day you know he just doesn't. I think in the Old Testament, God said, "The smell of your offerings is detestable to me and he's and these are the offerings that God told people to make. So why would they be detestable to him? They're following his command. Well, the reason is because they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. You know, they neglect the weightier matters of the law. You know, justice and uh, reconciliation. Jesus is trying to say, it's not, it's not that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm coming to show you what, exactly what I intended when we originally wrote this to Moses and to show you the way to follow me, the way to life. So as far as it depends on you, if it's possible, live at peace with everybody. If you remember someone has a problem with you, drop your gift and be reconciled. It doesn't matter what it's about. We have to humble ourselves. We have to take the first step. I think our world could use a lot more of this to tell you the truth. I think if we followed the actual teachings of Jesus that he makes so clear to us, we would be a city on a hill. We would be the light of the world. You know, because this is such a rare thing for people to humble themselves and go after true reconciliation with one another. Jesus continues in verse 25, finishing up the passage. He says, "...settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison." Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus moves out from this smaller picture of, of a relationship that needs to be reconciled. And then he he brings us into this legal situation uh, where there's an adversary suing a Christ follower. We don't know if that adversary is a Christian. Uh, I think that the implied thing is if if two Christians are suing each other in church, you know, guys, come on, figure this out. You're Christians. But here it's saying if there's an adversary who's bringing you to court, he says instead of maintaining your pride and seeking to prove something to a court of law, to a judge and a jury, once again, humble yourself. Try to reconcile with your legal adversary because if you do not do this, you may end up being ruled against even if you're innocent. You're going to have to pay and you're going to have to possibly go to jail even if you're innocent. So it's better to to take that anger, that desire for justice, for vindication, and humble yourself, and work things out before you get to the point of it being a legal issue. Again, this is not always possible, but he's saying, in good faith, make this effort. In good faith, make this effort. Jesus is very serious about relationships being reconciled. And there's a reason. There's a reason that he's so clear about this. There's a reason he's not talking in parables or riddles, He's not talking in abstract terms. The reason is because of how destructive anger and unreconciled relationships are and the havoc they wreak on even your own personal health and the health of your community. Um, and Jesus calls us to do something, being the excellent leader that he is, that he took all the way to his death. If you look at Second Corinthians five sixteen, it says, From now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That's all—the backbiting, reality television, bitterness, anger, gone amok. From now on, we do not regard anyone from that worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone; the new has come. All this is from God. Who listen to this? God reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Who had a right to hold their sins against them? God. God had the right to hold our sins against us, and he chose instead to reconcile us to God. If anyone had a right to do it, it was God, and he chose not to. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of, Of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Jesus took this message of reconciliation, this commandment not to murder and hate and to reconcile with people well before any of that stuff happens, to the cross. He took it with him to the cross. And He died following his own command that he's giving us today. And he reconciled us to God through that death on the cross. How can we hold something over a brother or sister in Christ or even an adversary who doesn't know Jesus? How can we be on any... What what solid ground do we have to stand and be the judge of the world? We don't. We might as well humble ourselves like our Lord and Savior Jesus and take on this ministry of reconciliation he's committed to us. It's funny in that passage, we always hear that verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But then the whole, the whole next part is the hard teaching. Be reconciled to God. Be an ambassador for reconciliation from God. First you, then everybody else. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Recognizing that Jesus has not held your sins against you if you trust in him. So we shouldn't hold other people's sins against them either. Do not murder. I hate, I hate to say that you leave church realizing you're a murderer, but, you know, sometimes you do. <laughs> what did you learn in church today? Well, I figured I was a murderer, so moving on. Jesus is saying, you know, sin is crouching at your door. This is serious stuff. This is fire. If you play with fire, you're going to be burned. And um, anger is the foothold of the adversary, and it doesn't take a lot to drag you into the muck. So let's, uh, let's pray as we seek the grace of Christ. The good news of this passage is that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. He does not hold our sins against us. Even if you have had and hold anger in your heart towards a brother or sister in Christ or towards someone else, um, God does not hold your sin of anger against you if you trust in Jesus. He, there's no condemnation on those who have anger. There is simply a, a line in the sand and a desire from this day forward to be reconciled with people, to humble ourselves, to, 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 to take on ourselves this ministry of reconciliation that once we've been reconciled to God, we can reconcile with anybody. Father God, I pray for your people that we would be a people who hear and, and desire to obey the teachings of Jesus. Lord, these are tough teachings. But I pray that we would become a people who are comfortable putting these teachings into practice. And I pray that you would draw people into this church fellowship who desire to follow Jesus as well, where we are all humbled by the words of Christ. We are all humbled. Some of us are like the legalists in our personality. Some of us are like the minimalists. And we just just feel anxiety when we hear these, when we think about the complexity of things. We thank you for making it so simple, though. You have made it so simple. So I pray that we would humble ourselves like Jesus, that we would glorify God by rooting out anger in our hearts. And if there is someone that we need to be reconciled with as far as it depends on us, Lord, give us the strength and give us the grace to be reconciled with people that we are in wrong relationship with right now. The anger would not grow in our hearts, into our lives, into our families. We all are just your children, Lord. We're all so dependent on you for your grace, for your help, But we, in my heart, Lord, I know that I'm not completely pure-hearted, but I want, I want to desire to follow Jesus' teachings above all things. I want that so badly for myself. I know that many here feel the same way. So God, give us grace to be your ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, to be reconciled to you, to reconcile others, even to play a part in reconciling two other parties that are struggling together as Christians. And may your body be unified. May your body be built up and strengthened so that the testimony of Christ can be stronger, so your light can shine brighter, so we can be the salt of the earth, the city on the hill for you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.